Stanford University. Thanks for coming out. Uh, I appreciate uh, that. It's always nice to, to speak to groups of people that, about things that, first of all, that I care about and hopefully that you care about. Um, as Nora told you, I'm the, uh, I'm the chairman of the Department of the Oph Ophthalmology at Stanford. I have been, so, been at Stanford for uh, 18 years, and I actually trained here uh, back in the mid-'70s. seems like a long time ago, and I've been chair for the last dozen years. But what I do mostly, uh, uh, from a clinical standpoint is I'm a retinal surgeon, so I'll tell you a little bit more about retina work uh, than I will other things, but because I uh, administer the department, I, I pay attention to everything, and I get to uh, hire the faculty that take care of all the different parts of the eye, and so it's really kind of a, a very nice thing for me. I thought I would start <coughs> the talk tonight. I'm gonna, just in, in, in terms of what I'm going to say, um, uh, I'm gonna try to cover a lot of ground with you, and so obviously I'm sure there are varied backgrounds here. There are probably some uh, people with very highly technical scientific backgrounds, and some of you that probably don't have that. So I'll, I'll try to address some of my comments to uh, each and every one of you, and we'll, uh, we'll start simple, and then we'll, we'll get more interesting as we go forward. Um, but I thought I'd start with a little video that I really enjoy that I think speaks to the issue uh, of why vision's important. Anyone who uh, watches, anyone who watches European TV knows this. Uh. So, so that's why you need to have sharp vision, so that you can avoid that type of disaster. Uh, Anyway, we're going to cover a little of what we call physiology of the eye, uh, and then we'll cover the basic diseases and some of the things we're doing at Stanford uh, to try to address those all, all in, in this evening. And we'll throw in a little bit of art history as well. So the eye uh, functions uh, analogously to a camera. Uh, I, I teach some, or I have taught over the years in, in some of the local grade schools and high schools, and I always tell them that the uh, Retina is like the film in the camera, but no kids don't know what film is anymore. They, uh, <clears throat> but it still does function like a camera, uh, and it's dependent on the presence of refracting elements, the, primarily the cornea and the lens, which are in the front of the eye. Then there has to be clear media <clears throat> to go to the back of the eye. And then finally, there's the retina uh, in the back that functions like actually a chip rather than film, but I bet you everybody in this room remembers film. Uh, but in order to see clearly, uh, several conditions uh, need to be met. Firstly, the light pathway has to be clear. This is a diagram. You can see the eyes uh, at the top uh, that are actually seen in the context of the central nervous system. They're really an outpouching of the brain, but we in ophthalmology call the brain an outpouching of the eye. Um, and then secondly, the images need to be precisely focused on the retina. And then finally, they travel uh, actually from the uh, 
from the uh, eye here through the optic nerve. They actually cross over the brain. This is called the chiasm. And then they uh, travel to the uh, very back of the brain. This is called the occipital cortex, where they're basically decoded, partially decoded, and they create what we, what we think of as our vision. And so you're, not only do you have to have good eyes, but you have to have a good brain as well to be able to have good sight. Now, the, the structure of the eyes uh, amazingly detailed. You would never, ever guess uh, how complicated it is unless you were to look at it under a microscope. Uh, there are about 100, 100 million excuse me, photoreceptors. Those are the light-sensing elements in the eye, of which about 94% are rods. Those are the uh, elements that uh, don't see color. They just see essentially light and dark. Um, and they handle our peripheral vision. And then there's about 6% uh, of the, all, the 100 million or so are uh, cones. And those, are the, uh, those, those sense not only uh, color vision, red, green, and blue, but they also, um, they also uh, help us with our fine visual discrimination, reading vision, uh, recognizing faces, and so forth. Um, and each of those photoreceptors um, actually ends up being uh, pruned down to about a million axons or nerve fiber, nerve fibers that trans, uh, transfer the visual information from the uh, retina and the eye uh, to the brain. So you can imagine there's a fair amount of organization going on in the eye before any images ever leave the eye to go to the brain, um, and that's what the retina does. Now, now rods and cones are really sort of uh, primarily, you could say, uh, uh, digital to analog chips or vice versa. Uh, in that they uh, convert light energy to electrical energy, and it turns out to be much more complicated than it might sound, and in fact, there was a Nobel Prize given for understanding uh, how, how that happens through some uh, chemical mediators called rhodopsin. Uh, but again, we, as we discussed before, the cones uh, subserve central vision and your color vision, so they're really important to, to your, your uh, fine uh, detail, and the rods subserve uh, peripheral vision and night vision. And you'll notice that there are people that see well in the day and not night and vice versa. And that depends on whether your rods and cones are both in good working order. Uh, and this, this molecule that we talk about is called rhodopsin. Uh, and then the, the, uh, these rods and cones are nourished actually by a layer called the pigment epithelium. Now, the macula is a very special part of the retina. The retina contains mostly rods, all the rods and cones, but the macula contains primarily cones and it occupies a very small area. It's actually only about uh, three or four square millimeters, uh, but it's uh, especially sensitive to disease, especially as we get older. And so most of the people that acquire uh, retinal diseases, the really common retinal diseases, especially macular degeneration, uh, they occur principally in the macula, and they, uh, and they principally involve the cones, not the rods. Now, cones are really interesting uh, because uh, in addition to helping us with fine visual discrimination, they also are responsible for color vision. And as you know, the, the male are the weaker of the species, and so we're more prone uh, to have abnormal various abnormalities, one of which is to have color deficiency. And, and it's, because, it's because the, uh, the uh, color, uh, color is coded for uh, on the Y chromosome. Uh, if, uh, if a person has an abnormality, um, the... Uh, uh, it's, it's, excuse me, on the X chromosome, excuse me, if you have an X and you have a Y, and if your X is deficient, you don't have a second X the way a, a female does to make up for the abnormal color vision, and as a result, uh, males are more prone to, uh, to, uh, to color blindness, and it was a common disease, actually, and 
Uh, it, we see it in the United States in anywhere from 5 to 20 percent of the male population. Um, and it was, it was actually a common uh, feature in s some of the royal families of Europe. Um, now the middle neurons, the ones that connect uh, the rods and cones um, to the brain are called um, are bipolar cells. And these are, these are connecting uh, circuits. And you might ask, well, why do you, why do you need to have these uh, connecting circuits? Why not go right from the rods and cones right to the brain? And the answer is that there's a lot of signal processing that goes on in the retina uh, that allows us to see much better. You know, when, uh, when we store images on our computers, we don't, uh, we don't really store all the information typically uh, because it's too memory intensive. Uh, you might have a four, six, eight, or even a 10 me megapixel image on your, especially if you've got a good digital camera, but you might, uh, but if you used uh, only, if you stored all of your images like that, you'd r soon run out of disk space. And that's really uh, the same, not only that, but it would be very slow uh, to transmit that information if you were sending it to Ritz camera or, or Kinko's or somewhere to print it. And so the brain faces that same dilemma in the eyes. And so what happens is the, uh, there's a fair amount of processing such that the retina creates the equivalent, if you will. This is a sort of a gross exaggeration, but it makes a point of a JPEG image in which uh, it, it, makes, it takes certain liberties and makes certain assumptions about seeing things. And so if it sees a line and it sees some color, it will generally fill in the whole area between the lines with a particular color. And that's what these middle neurons do, the uh, bipolar cells and the horizontal cells and amacrine cells are three types of cells. And so if these cells are damaged, uh, sometimes uh, patients can have normal photoreceptors, uh, but they just can't process the information and they have trouble actually distinguishing things. And there's been a lot of work uh, done in a number of uh, universities to show that uh, that uh, there's, there are ways in which we can uh, try to understand that better. We actually uh, call it now the language of the retina, or the, uh, essentially the processing code. Uh, this is an example of how these cells work. These are two images here, and some of you may know this. This is a famous uh, optical illusion in which if you look here, you can see that uh, there's an inner circle in both of these uh, donuts or bagels, if you will. And if you compare this one to this one, I'm sure uh, all of you would agree that this center circle here looks darker than this central circle, circle here. But uh, if you're aware of this, you know that in fact that's not true. What's, what happens is if you put, if you contra, if you uh, put in juxtaposition uh, a, a light field with a dark field, uh, these uh, these middle retinal neurons send signals that presuppose that that the darker one is dark and the lighter one is light. And so, in fact, if you were to cover the edges, these so-called edge effects, you would see, this is just a piece of paper put over them, the two central uh, circles are exactly uh, the same grayscale, if you will. And so that's, that's an example of edge detection. Now, why does, the brain, why does the brain do that? Well, it turns out that, that if you really just processed raw visual information, uh, uh, you can imagine how much trouble the brain would have uh, communicating that or, or interpreting that from the eye, and if you, and if you can only send a million axons and you've got a hundred million photoreceptors working, well then clearly there has to be some uh, pruning or some uh, shortcuts, and that's what that's what the brain is doing. It's the the retina is already saying, well, it's true I haven't looked all that carefully, but I'm I see a light field and I see a dark field, so there must be an edge there, and in fact the dark field must be darker. 
and that makes me see the edge better. And why, why do you want to see edges? Well, if you were playing tennis or baseball or something and you were looking at a white ball uh, that were coming at you 96 miles an hour uh, from Nolan Ryan or uh, anyone uh, of that uh, of that velocity, well, it'd be very hard to see something that was just white coming at you. But if you if that if that uh, white ball uh, is counterposed against, let's say, the uh, the, the bleachers, uh, then what happens is the brain or the retina in particular actually creates an edge, and so you're able to see it with a greater degree of distinction. And you can imagine if you were a if you were a hunter, if you were an eagle, or if you were a panther or a mountain lion or something like that, and you were trying to see a rabbit or a bird or whatever moving across a background, uh, you would actually use the same uh, uh, difference in, in shading to be able to create an edge, and then you'd be able to, uh, to uh, uh, target and visualize that more easily, especially if it were moving, and that's why we have these uh, edge detectors. This is a famous uh, Georgia O'Keeffe painting. Many artists have understood um, this phenomena, and they've used it to great effect. If you look here, you would, of course, assume uh, wrongly that this color here uh, is different than this color here, right? That this is lighter and this is darker. But what uh, she's done is she's used her knowledge of this uh, visual psychophysics to create an optical illusion. If you put a line across that edge, uh, it works backwards. In this case, the two, uh, the, uh, the, the, the presence of the line creates the sense that the lower image is darker than the upper image because you make an assumption uh, of that. And you can see here, in fact, the two backgrounds are exactly the same. Now, why is that? Uh, it's because uh, that's one of the tricks that helps us distinguish up from down. If you're a pilot, you know, flying at night, you, uh, one of the ways that you can tell the difference between the horizon and the, and the uh, and the, uh, uh, the sky and the horizon is by which is brighter. But if, uh, uh, if you're uh, unfortunate enough to be in a situation where those clues are not uh, uh, readily apparent to you, you might turn your plane upside down and, and, and take it into the ocean. And more than one uh, pilot has, has done that in the past. And you can use this in, uh, in color as well as in monochromatic situations. Van Gogh was uh, famous for using these, these types of uh, uh, illumination. And, other uh, clues to be able to create uh, complexities in the way that they painted. This is, uh, this is what I was telling you before. We assume uh, that light, the brain assumes, and we assume that when you see something that's light, it's assumed to come from above or that it's closer to you, and that makes sense. Obviously, light that reflects off a surface and comes back to you brightly, uh, you would assume that object that's reflecting the light to be closer to you than an object uh, that is more dimly illuminated, which you assume is taking longer for the light to get there and to come back. Uh, and the same thing is true about above and below. So just imagine for a moment, uh, Escher, this happens not to be an Escher, but it's kind of a takeoff on an Escher. Just imagine if you put something that looks like it's above, but then you make it darker. Uh, and at the same time, you take something that you think of as being uh, further away and you make it brighter and something that you think of as being closer and you make it darker. Well, the uh, brain actually becomes confused. So if you stare at that, you'll notice, you'll notice that, you, that you have trouble deciding what's up and what's down and what's near and what's far. And it's just because of that very simple clue about how much, uh, uh, how much brightness or luminosity that portion of the uh, piece has. And it's another example of how the processing that we do that kind of makes things easy can sometimes uh, lead us to see things that really aren't the way they are. And so seeing, it turns out, is actually not believing 
Uh, but it usually is, but not always. Now, what about focusing, uh, which is kind of a whole different thing? Um, uh, there's, a, there's a whole field of optics, and Newton was, was famous, and Copernicus, and a number of uh, great uh, uh, medieval and, and, and uh, Enlightenment era um, physicists uh, were, were really uh, uh, import, uh, made lots of important uh, observations about uh, uh, how we, in fact, uh, see things. And, and the first thing is, is that, uh, is that uh, light uh, travels in very predictable ways when it moves from um, media that are of lower refractive index to media of higher refractive index. And, and that's, what does that really mean? Well, for instance, if you move from air into glass, uh, the light ray is bent down, and that it, it bends proportional to the index of refraction, which has which essentially has to do with the density of the medium. And, and, and that's the whole basis for why we wear glasses or contact lens, because you can bend light. Uh, and and we, when there are abnormalities of the bending of light, such that the objects are not perp perfectly focused on the retina, the back of the eye, then we call that a refractive error. And this is Snell's law, which is a, just a mathematical equation, which says that that uh, uh, light rays are bent when light travels from a medium of one density to another, and you can predict exactly how much, and therefore you can figure out the curvature and, and what the index of refraction of the glass is. And you know, as you, you might know, that when you switch from uh, glasses made of glass to glasses made of polycarbonate or plastic, in fact, the lenses have to be proportionally larger or smaller because plastic and glass actually refract light at different levels because they have different indices of refraction. Now when we measure vision, there's lots of different ways to do this. You can see whether you recognize someone at a distance or you recognize an object uh, as being a cat versus a dog. But, but it, to standardize this in a physician's office, we have a variety of different tests, uh, one of which is Snell and visual acuity. We can also measure color and we can measure contrast sensitivity. All those, it turns out, are also extremely important, maybe even more important to some extent than Snell and Vision Acuity, but this is the classic measure uh, by which we actually will tell you what your, what your vision, how good or how bad it is, and it's usually described as a ratio of, uh, we, we typically use uh, uh, ratios of 20, 20 or 20, 30 or 20, 40. What that means is we see at 20 feet what we should see at 20 feet, that's 20, 20, and that ratio is one, and that's normal. If we see it, if our vision is impaired and, be, and we would have to be closer to an object to be able to see it, let's say for argument's sake that our vision was 20-40, meaning that we have to get within 20 feet of an object that a normally sighted person would see at 40 feet, then we call that 20-40, and that ratio is 2 over 4 or 0 0.5 or 1 half, and that's less than or worse than 1.0. And most of us in this room, when we were young at least, had uh, visual acuities actually greater than a ratio of 1.0, but around one's fine, and, and most of us can read quite well, even, even normal newsprint, as long as our vision is about 2040 or better, although we'd ideally like to be 2020. Now, turns out, what sort of, what sort of vision do you need uh, to be able to function you know, in the modern world? Well, for starters, you know, I think reading, reading and driving and uh, really require around 2040 vision. But if you just had to get around and take care of yourself and be able to feed yourself and uh, get around your house, you could, do, you could do that with much less visual acuity, especially in an era in which we have talking books and, and large newsprint and so forth. Well, here's what it would look like to a person 
who had vision of around 20 over 1,200, so that's a very small ratio. Uh, and we can, we can actually convert this into pixels, uh, which is a measure of, uh, of uh, the density in which uh, uh, small dots are, are displayed on, uh, in ink on paper. And this is, what, uh, this is what it would look like if you had pixel sizes of around 300 microns, and that's how big each pixel was. This is what the world would look like. In this, uh, in this case, you can't really, uh, this is 130 pixels. There's 130 separate individual bits of information on there, and most of you probably can't tell what that is. But as you start to increase the number of pixels, so you take all that visual information, and instead of having it be very large little blocks, large blocks of either light or dark, you increase the number of blocks, you, get to start, you start to get the feeling that you can tell what's going on. Now this is what 2400 vision is. This is actually still legal blindness as far as the California Department of Motor Vehicles is concerned. And yet, I think probably everybody here can tell that we're probably looking at two people. We're not really sure whether they're men or women, and we don't, we don't know what their background is, and we don't know what they're wearing, but, and this is already about 1,000 pixels. Uh, and these pixels have to be much smaller because we're going to crowd more pixels into the same unit area. Uh, so these are smaller pixels, but anyway, that's what they are. And by the time you get to around 2100, you can tell a lot about what's going on, that these are women and that they're, one's wearing a fur and, and that they're, they might be uh, on a ski slope somewhere. And so this is a fair amount of visual information. You might not be able to read what type of designer sunglasses they were wearing and, or what, the, what, the, what type of... Uh... And here you go to 2040, and that's, again, pretty sharp vision. You can, in fact, do better than that. You can get to 2012, and you can really start to see small details in skin and so forth and so on. So the more vision you have, the better. But, but to be realistic, uh, most of us can get by with probably a little less vision than we thought we could, unless you're you know, performing uh, retinal surgery or flying an airplane in, uh, in battlefield conditions or something like that. Now, it turns out that, that uh, actually these pixels have been known for quite some time, and, and uh, Seurat and many of the uh, pointillists that followed him, Signac and so forth in France, turn of the century, uh, used this uh, type of uh, effect to be able to paint. And the idea was that each of the, each of the individual pixels, instead of mixing the paint on the canvas and creating a particular color, if they used individual dots of paint. And you can see here, uh, uh, I've taken a close-up of the, of the hat of the clown uh, in that image. Uh, you can see that they believed, uh, as, as part of this whole element of, of uh, impressionism, that you could make the light essentially uh, jump off the canvas and create a different color mixing in your eye rather than mixing the color on the canvas. Uh, in fact, there are some problems with that thesis, but, but it does point out that if you stand far enough back, you, do, you lose even any sense, sense that there are individual dots of color, because the they, they actually have not been mixed together to create a uniform color. They're, they're working together to create essentially the same effect. And, and this is a uh, self, these are two uh, self-portraits by Chuck Close, uh, hence the pun here. And uh, he, he really has been the most probably visible advocate for this new form of pointillism, if you will, in which you can use individual uh, spot splotches of either black and white paint or, or color uh, to create uh, images that are strikingly lifelike and realistic. These are, these are taken up close, but if you stand about uh, 20 or 30 feet back from a Chuck Close uh, portrait, they in fact are virtually photographic, at least to my eye. 
And people have gone even a step further beyond this. And uh, Robert Silver has used actually small Polaroids. Uh, uh, and uh, just by changing the uh, color density uh, and the illuminance, uh, you can see here that he, those are all portraits of, of individuals, but uh, he's chosen the color in such a way that they create an image of his face. Uh, but you have to be pretty far in the back of the room. Probably those of you in the front of the room can't even appreciate that that's a self-portrait uh, on the left side. But on the right, there's a variation of that in which uh, David Hockney, who's a, a wonderful modern uh, artist, uh, English, uh, used the, te the technique of photo mosaic, photo collage, which he took individual um, Polaroid uh, prints and then pasted them together in essence, to recreate an image that he could have taken just by staying further back, but, but just by juxtaposing um, uh, different elements of slightly different color from slightly different perspective, it creates a whole different way of looking at things. And so it's just another example of how, we, how the brain, in fact, again, can be tricked um, um, uh, either by things that aren't what they seem or by a, a conscious attempt uh, to be able to uh, confuse us into seeing things in slightly different ways. Now this is, a, this is a diagram of an eye, and you can see here the light rays are traveling through the eye. This is a refractive error. Uh, and instead of uh, focusing on the back of the retina, you can see this little image of a man is turned upside down. Um, and in fact, it's focused in front of the eye, and then what happens is the light rays, instead of coming to a sharp focus right on the retina, they just keep, they cross over again and they spread out. So the image that's focused on the retina is in fact not in great focus uh, it's splayed out again, and that's why people who are nearsighted or myopic uh, don't see at distance clearly. And, uh, and so we, uh, and there can be two reasons for this, as you might imagine. One is that the, that the lens, well, the, the one reason is that the lens is not matched to the length of the eye. Now that can be due to one of two problems. Either the lens is the wrong power, um, or the eye's the wrong length. And obviously it's kind of a semantic argument, but we do know more or less what the normal power of a lens is and what the normal length of an eye is. So we can actually distinguish between people who have the wrong shape of their lens and people who just have too large an eye. And if you're, if you're very, very nearsighted, uh, we actually have a term for that. We call it pathologic myopia. And not only are things just not simply uh, in good focus on the retina, but in fact the eye wall, because it's so large, is stretched to the extent that the retina becomes damaged. And, there are probably a few of you in this room that have that. It's, it's quite common here in California. This is the alternative condition called hyper, hyperopia or farsightedness in which the images, not only do they not come together and focus in front of the retina, they don't come to focus on the retina. They need to go further back because the eye in effect is too short or the lens is too weak. Uh, and so it's the converse condition to myopia. Uh, there are some advantages to being myopic in that you, as you get to be over 45, uh, you don't have to wear glasses to read, uh, whereas there aren't too many advantages to being hyperopic. It doesn't help you at near or at distance. And both of these things can be corrected by uh, uh, surgery, actually, or procedures. Uh, astigmatism is a more complicated thing to explain, but in essence, it ha what, it has to say, what it has to do with is, is that, that uh, the, the cornea doesn't just uh, correct or the lens doesn't just correct one plane of light, it corrects multiple different planes. And so, in, in effect, uh, this plane could be uh, nearsighted and this plane could be 
uh, farsighted and so there, so it doesn't just create a, a blur in one particular location, it creates what we call a blur circle uh, where everything's out of focus and it takes a very specific lens that understands what the different powers are in different axes uh, to be able to uh, fix it and we call this astigmatism. Now uh, people had speculated that astigmatism in a sense can cause a form of distortion, it's not entirely correct but, but some people speculated probably incorrectly that El Greco, who you'll recall paints these sort of elong, like Giacometti, uh, paints these very long, elongated images, may have suffered from astigmatism, but we, we, we know that probably not to be true. The, the final uh, refractive error, there are four, myopia, hyperopia, astigmatism, and the fourth one is called presbyopia, and, and presbyopia is, a, is essentially a disease that 100% of us get, uh, as we get over the age of 40 in which we're not able to, to read up close as we get older. Now we lose that ability. In fact, uh, we all have the ability to focus both at near by this process called accommodation in which we're actually able to change the shape of the lens on the fly according to how closely we hold things. Uh, but we lose that ability and we lose it a little bit every single year and what happens is n nothing acute happens at the age of 42 or 43 or 44, but rather you sort of fall off the cliff. You've been rolling downhill for a while and then you fall off this cliff at about age 42, 43 or 44 um, and uh, you just run out of accommodative power. And so you have to wear reading glasses unless you are lucky enough to be uh, somewhat mildly nearsighted, in which case you're not exactly sharp at distance because you're a little nearsighted, but then you're pretty good but not perfect at near and that's actually what I have. It's a very low refractive error and it starts in the 40s. So we do these things called refractive surgery which help us uh, treat patients who have refractive errors. We tend to do refractive surgery on people who are in their 20s, 30s and to some extent 40s. By the time you're in your 50s or 60s we don't do it as often because there are other ways to get to that same goal but, but, the, but the surgical goal of refractive surgery uh, is to uh, essentially to, sh to change the shape of the cornea in such a way that you stop being nearsighted or stop being farsighted, but mostly nearsighted. Now, refractive errors in the United States are really common. Now, there, you know, there are 300 Americans, 300 million Americans or so, and about 150 million of us have to wear glasses, either for distance, near, uh, or, or for near. Uh, about 25% of the population is uh, nearsighted, and, and in Asia, um, it, it's as high as 60 or 70 percent and we don't really understand that but there are both genetic and in environmental factors. We did you know more than uh, two million uh, LASIK procedures which is for myopia in the United States last year alone. This is one technique called PRK or photorefractive keratectomy in which we use an excimer laser beam to reshape the front of the cornea here. This is a cold laser, it doesn't heat or coagulate tissue, it, it ablates tissue or just vaporizes it, turns it into water, um, and, uh, and it's quite effective, but this has been replaced by another technique uh, called LASIK, uh, or, which stands for laser in situ keratomyosis. It's a mouthful to say, that's why we call it LASIK. Um, and, uh, and it uses an extramer laser. The difference between this and the other technique I showed you is this is quite elegant. First of all, we make a flap in the cornea and we, and we split the cornea, which is only about a half a millimeter thick to begin with, we split that in half and we flip it over. Why do you do that? So that you don't have to damage 
the front of the cornea with the laser. Because if you do, it has to heal for two or three days, and that, during that period of healing, it's somewhat uncomfortable or, or quite uncomfortable. And so a, a really smart uh, South American ophthalmologist figured out that if you actually split the cornea, flipped it over, and then did the laser on the, uh, after you had flipped over this cornea, you'll see it flipping over here in a moment, uh, that you could then flip it back when you were done, and it wasn't painful at all, and in fact, people could see 20-20 the next day without having to wear an eye patch for two or three days. So here you can see he's made the, he's essentially flipped over this little hinged joint, and then they're gonna use the eczema laser now, and then they use two different lasers to do this. One laser that cuts the flap, and an entirely different laser that actually ablates the front of the cornea. And you'll see here the laser beam's gonna come down in a moment, and it, and it, and it ablates uh, a, a small amount of tissue. Now, um, the company that really, I would say, did the most work on this is based right here in Santa Clara called Vizex. Uh, and they, uh, one of the scientists that founded the company uh, came up with a nomogram that essentially said for every diopter of uh, nearsightedness you have, you have to ablate so many microns of the cornea. And as you might imagine, as you become increasingly uh, nearsighted, it becomes diff more and more difficult to do this procedure because you can't essentially ablate too much of the cornea before you end up with nothing. So it's not for everyone, uh, but it does work for people who have moderate amounts of uh, myopia. This is just uh, what you may hear about when people are advertising for LASIK. Uh, they use what's called wavefront measurement therapy. And what it says is that the cornea isn't necessarily a perfectly uh, round sphere. In fact, there are these surface aberrations, very subtle abnormalities, and so they can use a particular type of laser measurement to measure this in a very uh, precise way, and then in, in effect, uh, they can uh, uh, program the laser to cut according to that uh, wavefront uh, thing. Getting into the more common things that probably affect uh, more of us in this room, uh, cataracts. Uh, what is a cataract? People think of a cataract as something that's growing in your eye. Well, that's actually a misnomer. Uh, cataracts are uh, actually an opacity in your naturally occurring lens. This is a, this is a, a really unusual thing in, in this day and age. And I say this is what we call a, a mature cataract. Almost nobody ends up getting these anymore because their cataracts are always removed in a much earlier stage. This is a more typical, what we call a posterior uh, cataract in which you see a little, little black of tissue, block of tissue that almost looks like a heart on its side. And this, is, as you might imagine, gets in the way of the light path. And so uh, it's not possible to focus it sharply on the retina. And as a result, you see blurring. And people who have these types of cataracts actually complain, complain, complain not only of uh, blurring, which is bad enough, but sometimes if the cataract is very small, it can st even if it doesn't cause blurring, it causes glare under specific lighting conditions, so as, such as driving uh, down a road at night and having the headlights come up and cause a kind of a blinding glare. And, and lots of famous people have had cataracts and written about it or talked about it. This is, these are the paintings by uh, Monet of the cathedral at Arles. And you can see here on the left, this is painted earlier in his career. Uh, and this isn't just an artistic device. He, as he got older, it was well documented that Monet developed cataracts. And so he became, things became more uh, blurry. And you can actually see the glare that he was seeing here as he painted the same cathedral at a different point in his life. Now, I think he was making a point to some extent, but you can see how he used this type of impressionistic uh, uh, brush technique to be able to, to convey that. Cataracts are, are really common. In fact, if we live long enough, virtually all of us will get a cataract. Maybe not everybody, but 
but certainly probably by the time you're 90, 95% uh, of people have a cataract, uh, and most of those have had them removed. Uh, but you can see here, uh, percentage of cataract in the age, age of 65 is about 68%, so there's a relative correlation between your age and the likelihood or frequency of you having a cataract. Now the indications for surgery are really more personal lifestyle oriented than they are medical. Cataracts are not like having a tumor or like having a, a heart condition where you absolutely have to have it fixed or something terrible will happen to you. The, the only thing bad about having a cataract is you just don't enjoy the same quality of life as someone that doesn't have a cataract and doesn't have abnormal vision. And so we tell people that, uh, that, that, that what I tell people is that uh, uh, you decide when your cataract comes out, not me. And, uh, and that tur turns out to be uh, a truism. And so when you can't read the fine print anymore, when you can't drive a car, when you can't recognize your children or your grandchildren, <laughs> uh, by their voice, at least, uh, that's a time to consider it. This is an example here of Monet painting the, uh, a bridge um, in a lily pond in his, uh, in, his, uh, uh, in his country estate. And you can see that uh, he was unable here by the time his cataract became very severe uh, to paint it. Now, probably some of this was an, an advanced form of impressionism, but it's not, just, um, it's not just the blurring. And why is that? Can, does anybody know why these two are different? Well, the one thing is that you can see this is much more yellow. You know, it has more earth tones. And that's a classic uh, feature of cataracts is the cataract actually turns brown or orange as you get older. And so the world, in fact, looks darker and more uh, with warmer colors. And after his cataract was removed, you can see here uh, when he painted this again, it was uh, to a much uh, greater degree of realism than before. And so he was one person that, uh, and, and he talked about this as part of his life. Um, um, this is an example of what, this is a, I found over the years that it's better not to actually to show real surgery because it's too uh, disturbing to some people. Uh, so this is just an artist's representation. I think it's easier to watch. But this is somebody actually performing modern cataract surgery. Uh, and it's, it's quite realistic. And you can see the first step that, that goes on is that uh, uh, a surgeon reaches in and he removes a small amount of tissue from the front of the lens called the lens capsule. And that essentially creates an opening or a scoop uh, into which you can then insert a probe called an ultrasonic handpiece, and that probe actually uh, is, uh, is, has an ultrasonic buzz to it, if you will. And if you're, for those of you that have had your teeth cleaned with an ultrasonic cleaner, you know what, that, what I'm talking about. It uses water, and it, and it makes a hissing noise, and that essentially emulsifies or softens the tissue so that you can then suck it out. And then finally, the surgeon inserts a, a replacement lens, which is soft, so it's all folded up inside that little tube, and then as you insert it into the eye, it unfolds into its normal shape, and it basically replaces your normal uh, lens, except that it's crystal clear, and it's exactly chosen to be the right power. So even if during your earlier part of your life you suffered uh, from being nearsighted or farsighted, when the surgeon uh, measures you to have cataract surgery, one of the things they do, he or she, is they determine what, the power, what your ideal power should be, um, and they then insert this lens, um, in such a way that you're no longer nearsighted or farsighted, unless you choose to be um, nearsighted, because you want to be able to read without glasses and you don't mind wearing glasses to see at distance. And that's a decision that you can make with your surgeon ahead of time. Uh, these are what these intraocular lens implants look like. Uh, they're smaller than a, this, you know, a dime, and you can see them here over a surgeon's finger, and they fit into the eye. 
and they have little struts that are called haptics that actually position them right in the, in the right location. This is, a, this is actually a, a different condition that's much more uncommon called uh, corneal opacity. And you can see here a surgeon is, uh, is removing the cornea and replacing it with a clear cornea. And you can see corneal diseases uh, and patients that require corneal transplantation. Sometimes it's genetically determined. Sometimes it's caused by injuries. Sometimes it's caused by infections. But, but this is surgery that's kind of similar to cataract surgery, except the, the, the negative thing is, is that you, unfortunately, someone has to die for you to have availability of a cornea, because these are all donated from eye banks, just the way livers and hearts and kidneys are danced. So one thing that we're doing at Stanford is we are doing what's called tissue engineering, ophthalmic tissue engineering, where we're actually trying to, to uh, machine uh, special polymers that can be used so that we don't have to rely upon uh, someone dying to make a cornea available to, to do a corneal transplantation. And this is work that was done by Chris Ta in our department with David Myung and Kurt Frank in chemical engineering. And we were pretty close to having a cornea that will soon be ready to be able to be uh, tested in humans. It's not there yet, I should be very clear, uh, but that it has a lot of the, of the mechanical stress uh, and clarity characteristics that would allow it to be substituted for a donor cornea. And this will be really important, not only in the United States, where we're pretty lucky in terms of having people be willing to be organ donors, but especially in the, in the uh, developing world and in certain nations that have religious or cultural prohibitions uh, to donating uh, tissue. So it turns out to be quite important from a world public health standpoint. Now, glaucoma is another condition in the United States that, that is really common. There's about 3 million people in the United States. About 1% of the population has glaucoma, and there may be another... Uh, and of those, about a million are actually unaware they have it, and that's really a bad thing because uh, if untreated and unrecognized, uh, it does lead to blindness, and very, very severe type of blindness, I might add, not just blurring. This, this disease is, I guess, it's easiest to think of it as a, a condition in which there's an ele <coughs> elevation of the pressure in the eye, and that elevation of the pressure in the eye causes there to be damage, and that damage occurs uh, to a particular cell in the retina called the ganglion cells, uh, but it also seems to push out on the optic nerve and cause what we call cupping here, where the, the, uh, the optic nerve becomes damaged. We don't know whether this is primary or secondary, but that's not important. The fact of the matter is, is that if you have an elevated pressure and it's not treated for too long, uh, you will develop glaucoma damage. Sometimes you don't even have to have a high pressure. Uh, some patients have normal pressures, at least in theory they're normal. 20 or less is considered normal, 21 or less to be exact and uh, just like blood pressure, and yet that, even that pressure of 18 or 19 may be too high in some individuals, and that's why we do recommend that all people over the age of 40, really, and certainly over the age of 60 or 65, <clears throat> should have annual eye exams and be measured. Their pressure should be measured and their optic nerves should be evaluated to make sure they don't have glaucoma because it's very treatable if it's caught early. On the top left, you can see a normal optic nerve here where the, the ratio of the white in the center to the overall ratio of its diameter is about 0 0.3 or less. That's normal. When you get to around 0 0.6 or 0 0.7, that's not normal. And so that's a feature that we can see quite easily by looking in your eye. <coughs> and um, as a result, we would, we would treat a person like this. If you have glaucoma, these, these diagrams are a little hard to understand, but if you think about it as what a person sees looking off in the distance, these are all dark spots here where your field of vision is missing, where, where it's uh, 
black here. So instead of me seeing, looking at all of you, I'm maybe missing the first two of you and the second three of you in the front row and I see everybody else. That's called a scotoma or a blind spot and that's the classic feature. Oh, we use drops. I don't have any financial interest in any, any of these medications, uh, but these are different drops that are used uh, to lower the pressure and they're quite effective. And these were actually developed at Columbia and uh, Columbia University has made a fortune over the years, rightfully so, by uh, licensing these to various drug manufacturers. And it's an example of successful technology transfer that really benefits everyone. Uh, retinal diseases are the last thing I'm going to cover. Uh, and they're very common. The two, uh, the two leading causes of blindness in the United States today in terms of numbers of patients involved um, are retinal diseases. One is uh, macular degeneration. The second is, uh, is uh, diabetic retinopathy. And uh, these, are, these are photographs of the normal retina here. You can see the, these, uh, these here are the photoreceptors, the rods and cones. This is the choroid or the blood supply that nourishes. And then in between these two is a layer called the pigment epithelium. And this is a normal diagram here. That's an artist's representation. This is what it looks like to me if I look in your eye. Now it turns out that uh, macular degeneration is the leading cause of irreversible vision loss if you're over the age of 65. If you're under the age of 65, it's diabetic retinopathy. And it, and it increases very dramatically, especially when you get to be around 70 or 75, such that after the age of 75, about a quarter of the population has it to some degree. Fortunately, usually not severe. Only about 3% of the population over the age of 75 has the severe form, but that still is about a million people. Uh, now, the, there are two forms of macular degeneration. The, the first is the dry form. This is the one that you can kind of live with and do all right, in which you just see these little yellow spots here. These little yellow spots here are called drusen. Uh, you can see they're little, look like little stars in the sky, and they correspond to thickening of this layer here called Brooks membrane which is between the pigment layer here and the blood vessel layer here. And you can live with this and have good vision 2025 or 2030 or 2040 for years or decades. But if you're unlucky, what happens is blood vessels will actually grow through that layer because it becomes stiff and cracked. And these blood vessels, which are supposed to stay on this side of the fence here, move through and they form and they bleed and they leak and they cause scar tissue and then you lose your central vision. And that's a bad thing. Now we have a variety of uh, cool tools, if you will, lasers and uh, cameras and so forth that we use to diagnose this. And you can see this is what the various forms of, uh, of macular degeneration look like using different uh, special filters. Uh, and so we, we, we really get an enormous amount of information from uh, examinations in the office without any x-rays or any, uh, anything too fancy. This is a called optical coherence tomography. Uh, this is a technique in which uh, you see images. Uh, it's as though we had removed the eye and cut the eye and put it under the microscope and we can see that level of detail using this. And these are all different patients with different conditions here, all of which we can diagnose with an amazing degree of precision that would be of unheard of five years ago. So things are really changing fast. This is a small blister of fluid right here, macular degeneration. This is another form of macular degeneration. Um, Another form here. Turns out that this, this, is, this has gone from being utterly untreatable prior to 2002 or 2003 to being highly treatable in 2006, 2007. Um, this is actually the, uh, this is considered the standard of care. I have no financial interest in this molecule. It all is called, uh, it's called Lucentis. 
Uh, it's manufactured by, uh, uh, by um, Genentech up the, up the road in South San Francisco. And it's what's called a monoclonal antibody. It's an antibody that's directed, it's been, it's been engineered, it's not naturally occurring, it's been engineered by man to attack a molecule called VEGF. VEGF is the cytokine or the hormone, if you will, that causes uh, blood vessels to behave abnormally. Now, VEGF was discovered as being an important part of the cascade of events that leads um, uh, cancers to metastasize from one location of the body to the other. And what it does is it stimulates the, the growth of new blood vessels. And when, and when a cancer cell spreads, let's say from your colon or your lung to your liver, uh, the thing that actually facilitates that that new focus of cancer growing is the, the growth of blood vessels which essentially feed those cells. Now it turns out that that's how VEGF was discovered, but it turns out that, that VEGF is something that many cells in the body can make under abnormal conditions. And when, and when those conditions are abnormal in the eye, uh, these blood vessels grow and you don't need to have a cancer in your eye to lose vision, just the blood vessels themselves cause that. This molecule is very powerful. This essentially acts as a sponge, and it soaks up the VEGF and, re and reduces it such that, that it, uh, patients uh, previously uh, had a 95% chance of going legally blind once this disease started. 95%, 90% chance of being legally blind within six months of the onset of this disease. So not only was it bad, but it was very rapid. Uh, in contrast to that now, patients have about a 90% chance of not going legally blind if uh, the diagnosis is made early and if they're treated with Lucenus. Now there is, a, there is a, uh, a dark side to that and that is that first of all the drug's very expensive. Uh, Medicare does pay for it but even with that uh, the co-pays make it somewhat of an expensive therapy. And secondly and probably worse, it does require that patients be injected every month or every other month uh, with uh, these, with these uh, a direct injection of this drug into the eye. Now it sounds awful it's not, uh, it's, it's kind of like just getting a flu shot every month, uh, and probably a few of you have had these injections. Uh, but it, you know, we use a sharp needle and, and it takes about, you know, a minute to do it. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, no one wants to trot to the doctor's office every month and then it'd be, you know, the proverbial joke about, it, it's about as much fun as a sharp poke in the eye. And, and, uh, and so we know that we have to do better. Uh, the only problem is that there, right now, there is no way to administer this drug less frequently uh, and achieve the kind of good visual outcomes that we want. And so we are compelled to re-inject the drug so it, it makes it both inconvenient and expensive. And, and I'm actually quite involved in working out ways uh, as part of my research, my personal research, to find a better way to do this so that we only have to do it maybe once or maybe once a year. And I, I don't think we're too far away. I think we're two or three years away from being there. I don't think it's 10 or 20 years. but but it's not next month either, unfortunately. Uh, this is what this drug does. If you look at patients uh, that are treated, um, uh, and this is, a, this is called a randomized prospective clinical trial. This is the gold standard of medicine, and this is how we really judge. It's not somebody who has an ad in the paper, you know, for electrical current over your eye or, or uh, going to Mexico and, and, and having intravenous where people make these extravagant claims. This is where you take uh, 500 patients and you divide, or 450 patients, and you divide them into three groups, and you randomly allocate a third or 150 to receive a placebo or no treatment, and then an, another third to receive one dose of the drug, and then you re, uh, randomize another third to receive a different or a second dose, usually higher 
of the drug, and then we compare. And the doctor doesn't know what, what drug the patient got or the placebo, and the patient doesn't know, so we call that a double-masked trial so that nobody knows except uh, the statistician. And then at the end of a year or two, uh, we break the code, and everybody finds out, first of all, whether the drug works, and secondly, who got the drug and who didn't. And those that didn't get the drug are then eligible to the drug, although sometimes uh, it may be too late. But nonetheless, it's a necessary step. Um, and ethicists are all in agreement that this is the very best way, uh, for, especially for the FDA to, be, to act upon which drugs are useful. Otherwise, we end up having 20 drugs on the market, 19 of which don't work uh, because uh, they haven't been subjected to, to rigorous scrutiny. At any rate, uh, you can see here that in the sham group here, only 15%, 10% actually, here of the patients that, uh, that uh, received the sham or the placebo had 20-40 vision by the end of 12 months compared with 40% uh, either, uh, with either of the two other drugs. Now, this doesn't mean the other 60% went blind. It just means that they didn't have 20-40. In fact, if you look at it the other way, um, patients, uh, uh, everybody uh, maintained some level of vision if you got the drug, almost everybody. Uh, and if you didn't get the drug, most people lost all their vision. This just showed here that when they tried to, uh, they did another study where they said, let's fine, we'll give you three, three months in a row with the drug, and then, um, and then following that, we'll try to space it out more so that you don't have to keep bring, bringing yourself into the office every single month. And the unfortunate thing was, and, and all of us were very disappointed to see this result, you can see here during the first three months of this trial, uh, the patients all had improvement in vision. And then when we spaced out the injections to every three months rather than every month, everybody dropped back to where they started. Now, that turns out is much better than if they'd not been treated at all. These poor people here who were not treated, who were in the control group and nobody knew who was in which group, they just started losing vision here and they just kept losing vision for two years. No, 12 months, excuse me. And so you were still far better off being treated infrequently than not being treated at all. That's the difference right here between these two groups. But you weren't as good as the people that were treated every month, and they, they stayed like this. And so if you, we don't have the data for those, that group out, but if, you, if we did, you would have seen them gaining vision, the people who were spaced out maintaining vision, but not, but not either gaining or losing vision, and those that were not treated losing a lot of vision. This is kind of an interesting business issue. Uh, it turned out that when Genentech developed this drug, they were also developing a very similar drug a little before that called Avastin uh, for colon cancer. Um, and uh, they, they were convinced that Avastin would not work for the eye because they thought the molecule was too large and it wasn't designed precisely for the eye. And so they didn't uh, make it available you know, specifically to ophthalmologists. Uh, they worked instead on Lucenus, but what happened was because that took more time, patients uh, were still continuing to lose vision because they didn't have a drug available. And a very smart ophthalmologist, a, a friend of mine, uh, Phil Rosenfeld uh, at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute, said, well, what if we put Avastin in the eye while we're waiting for a Lucenus to become available? And he did, and it turned out that it seemed to work quite well. And to the extent that in the United States today, of all the people that receive drugs, about 55% receive Avastin now, and 45% receive Lucenus. Now, that, you might say, well, that's okay. Uh, but uh, Medicare is vitally interested in this because for the 55% of patients that received Avastin, because 
the pharmacies were mixing it up from much larger doses that were meant for cancer patients, the total cost of Medicare was $20 million. And for the Lucenis, which causes, costs $2,000 a dose, the total cost was approximately $800 million. So it was about a 40-fold difference for about the same amount of treatment. Now, that's not to say, to be very clear, uh, that the two treatments are equivalent. We don't know that yet. It, the, the Avastin has never been put to the same uh, scrut uh, scrutiny in terms of a prospective randomized clinical trial that Lucenis has. And so we say in medicine that the standard of care, the gold standard of care, is still Lucenis, but a lot of us believe that Avastin is probably very good. In fact, it, has, it is now being put to that test. And so uh, we think that... Uh, that we'll have an answer to this question. You know, does it work and how good is it compared to Lucenis? Uh, probably within the next 12 to 18 months. And I'm sure that uh, Genentech is waiting with bated breath uh, uh, to hear the results to this because clearly it, uh, it will be a major cost saving assuming that the trial shows uh, that, uh, that the two are roughly equivalent. Um, in the interest of time, I think I'm gonna stop here. We've really covered all the diseases except for diabetic retinopathy. Maybe I'll show you one slide uh, that shows you what uh, diabetic retinopathy does to the eye. There are two causes. Um, there's a so-called non-proliferative or diabetic macular edema, and there's proliferative, which means the growth of new blood vessels. And this just shows you here that the non-proliferative form is caused primarily by leakage, and the, and the degree of, to which you develop diabetic retinopathy is more or less proportional to how poorly controlled you are. So the more poorly controlled you are, the more likely you are to develop diabetes. Now that sounds self-evident, doesn't it? Well, you know, we didn't know until around 1994 whether how well you were controlled with diabetes uh, correlated with whether you got retinopathy. And so it was, put to a it was put to the test, another randomized controlled trial, and it was proven conclusively. But interestingly enough, for 40 years or 50 years or 60 years, since the introduction of uh, insulin, people were debating this, and there were many people who said, oh, it doesn't matter you know, whether you're tightly controlled or loosely controlled, uh, it, it, you're still gonna get diabetic retinopathy, but we know that's absolutely not true. And for those people that are well-controlled, meaning that they have a specific target glucose level of about 120 on average or less, those patients are very unlikely to develop retinopathy or at least severe retinopathy. And if they have a, you know, a value of 200 or more roughly, shall we say, on average, then they're much more likely to develop problems. So it pays to be really compulsive about your diabetic control. And this is the proliferative form here on the right. And what we know is that if uh, we use, a, we use a, a technique called laser photocoagulation, in which we actually create little burns in the retina, uh, and, this, and, and for whatever reason, and it's not entirely clear, uh, by damaging a certain part of the retina with a laser, it's possible uh, to be able to cause this to regress. This was a monumental contribution. It was only figured out uh, in the 1970s, actually. And it was done here at Stanford. The initial people that really popularized this were two of my teachers, Drs. Uh, Zwang and Little, who were on the clinical faculty at Stanford, and they pioneered the use of laser uh, for this condition here. Uh, since that time, we've continued to work hard at Stanford. This is called the Pascal laser, the pattern scanning laser. I do have a small interest in this, just for the purposes of disclosure. And it was, but it was developed at Stanford, um, and we, uh, we, de we uh, uh, developed this and licensed it out. And it's now more or less the standard of care for the treatment of this disease uh, in uh, virtually all the academic medical centers in the United States today. 
uh, and it uses a pattern scanning uh, as opposed to a single spot. And you can see here what it does. It's kind of cool. Instead of putting in one spot at a time so that these treatments take 15 or 20 minutes and are somewhat painful, it uses what we call a raster array or, or galvanometers to actually to deliver the spots so that you can deliver somewhere between 25 and 50 spots in less than a second. And so the speed of this treatment has been reduced from around 20 or 30 minutes where it's pretty uncomfortable to around four or five or six minutes and quite comfortable. But the, the secret is to use uh, short pulse durations. So we use pulse durations today, just in the last three years or four years, that are five times or 10 times shorter than the individual pulse durations that we used to use more than five years ago. And in fact, there are still many centers in the United States, smaller centers that are not, haven't even started to use this yet. So it's an example of, I think, one of the reasons why we're fortunate to live in this area and to have Stanford as a resource and to be able to have access to new technology uh, earlier. I think everybody gets it eventually, but I believe that we do get things a little earlier at Stanford because we try to be as much as possible on the cutting edge. So I think with that, I'll stop my comments, and I'll be happy to take a few questions, although we're coming up right on the, uh, on the 8 o'clock mark here. So thank you very much for being such a patient audience. Yeah, the question is, uh, is, the, is the old lens pulled out of the eye when we repair a cataract? So we don't really, to be specific, we don't really repair a cataract. We remove the cataract, and the, and the, and the lens um, is a complex structure. It has two, it has like a front surface and a back surface. To be, pr to be perfectly precise, we remove all the substance of the lens. So we suck it out as a kind of a slurry or a liquid and we remove part of the front surface and typically none of the back surface and then we slide a plastic lens or a silicone lens into what's left of the capsule. Uh, and it, but, so that stays in, but, the, but, but all of the tissue from the center of the lens comes out. Gesundheit. Uh, um, uh, the question is, can you have cataract symptoms after you've already had your cataract removed? And the answer is yes. We call that a secondary cataract. And remember I said to you, we, we typically leave the back surface of the old lens in, and that acts as a hammock or a support system uh, that supports the new plastic lens. And that, that old capsule can become cloudy, okay? And, uh, and so what we do if somebody develops those symptoms, which typically are blurring or glare, is we punch a small hole in that capsule uh, with, with a particular type of laser, not the one I showed you, but another laser called a YAG laser. And that YAG laser opens a, an opening and allows a light to be focused again uh, clearly on the retina. And so that is, so it's not uncommon. About 20% of people who have cataract surgery roughly require opening of the capsule, the secondary cataract. It's, it's almost 100% of young people who are in their 20s, 30s, or 40s if they happen to need a cataract operation. As you get older, it's a little bit less likely that you would need to have that done. And there is some element of skill involved in the cataract surgery. So some of the very, very best cataract surgeons to some extent have a little bit less secondary cataract than others. But, it, but, it, but it just if you were to get it, it doesn't mean that you didn't have good surgery. It just means that uh, Either you're younger or you're more of a scar former. Ludian, yes, uh huh, yes. So, so I should have covered that for you. Uh, I spoke mostly about the wet form, but yes, people who have the other form I showed you, the dry form, that uh, that's loss of pigment, but but consistent with good vision, 
Uh, we know uh, from large, uh, one, another large randomized controlled clinical trial called ARADS, age-related eye disease study, we have, we have acronyms for every study we do, um, showed that if you take uh, not lutein uh, per se, uh, but uh, vitamin A, C, E, and zinc, those four, uh, and those are made in a proprietary vitamin, vitamin called uh, Occuvite, uh, they have about a 38% reduction in the rate of vision loss compared to people that don't take that vitamin. So clearly vitamins help, and I, I was remiss in not covering that with you. Uh, everybody here who has macular degeneration should take that vitamin. There's another study going on that is expanding on the initial study, which is looking at lutein, which is a, 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 a colored compound that we find in certain leafy green vegetables uh, and squash and, and so forth. Uh, and another, another uh, kind of a hormone, if you will, uh, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, which are found in, in, uh, in fatty fish. And they're testing to see whether those two compounds, in addition to the other four vitamins I told you about, uh, have incremental benefit too. So I, I personally believe in lutein, but there is not a huge body of evidence yet to prove that. So it's my clinical intuition and my impression, my clinical impression that lutein helps. And so I do recommend for my patients that they take lutein, uh, and, but, but it may be that the study will come out in two years and prove me wrong. But, but we think it's safe, and so, so um, I think most retinal surgeons believe that lutein's a good thing. Occuvite, O-C-U-V-I-T. There's also another one called ICAP, I-C-A-P. Those are, those are basically vitamin formulas that you can buy in the pharmacy I have no uh, interest in, in any of those compounds. And, and, mo and we all recommend that anybody who has more than trivial macular degeneration take two of those tablets daily. Uh, you are next, yes. And then you. Yes, that is the treatment for the dry form. Now, there's a lot of other uh, research going on. I mean, obviously, we covered a lot of ground tonight. Uh, I could tell you a lot more about dry macular degeneration, but. There is, a, there is a particular gene called the complement factor H gene that was just discovered four years ago uh, to be really important in the pathogenesis. And what complement is, complement is, a, is a, an immune surveillance uh, that actually identifies uh, bacteria in your bloodstream and it goes and attacks the bacteria and kills them uh, in conjunction with antibodies. Uh, but it turns out that like all things, if complement is too revved up, um, and even when there are no bacteria around, uh, something is turning it on. And there's this, this particular complement uh, seems to attack the pigment layer under the retina and causes patients to be predisposed to macular degeneration. And so if you have a particular variation, variant of complement factor H, you are either more or less likely to develop macular degeneration. There are at least six new companies, all of whom have their own special, you know, sauce, if you will, their own uh, new drug that, that, that uh, acts on the complement pathway. And we think that that's going to be the magic bullet. One of those or many of those may be the magic bullet that downregulates that complement and, and really prevents the, uh, uh, the dry form from occurring or at least prevents it from progressing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't really think uh, of, of vitamins as helping with glaucoma. There might, in fact, maybe, you know, antioxidants help lots of things. Um, certainly macular degeneration, maybe cataracts, you know, maybe heart disease, maybe colon cancer. 
uh, because anytime you oxidize any tissue, it, we think it makes it prone to other problems, whether it's cancer or clouding or whatever. Uh, glaucoma is different. Uh, glaucoma is really more of a pressure-related uh, event. And so the drugs that really work in uh, treating glaucoma um, uh, are those that actually lower the pressure. Um, and so, and there are a whole host of drugs. There are probably four or five different important mechanisms of action uh, where you can lower pressure, just like you can lower blood pressure with a beta blocker or a, a, you know, a, a, an ACE inhibitor or a, you know, a variety of different mechanisms or, uh, or a, a thiazide diuretic. In the same way, we have a whole groups of different drugs that lower pressure. Now, there's an interesting new uh, theory about glaucoma that says that it's actually an, a neurodegenerative disease, like Alzheimer's disease or like um, uh, uh, Parkinson's disease, any of those diseases that are caused by progressive damage to neurons that may not entirely be due to pressure but may be due to other things like an inherited susceptibility. And so there's a, there are some classes of drugs that are called neuroprotective agents uh, that people are looking at. There was just one large trial that was unsuccessful. Uh, a particular large drug company spent uh, uh, tens of hundreds of millions of dollars developing this drug, put it to the trial, and it didn't work. Um, uh, but other companies are still working on this, and, and, uh, and that's particularly true. Remember I told you about this condition of so-called normal tension glaucoma, where the pressure is not high, and yet people develop glaucoma. Now, some people think no matter what the pressure is, if you just make it lower, it'll be fine. So if, if normal is 21, and, but, you, but you get glaucoma even with a pressure of 18, well, maybe if you take the pressure down to 12, you won't get glaucoma. Other people feel, well, no, it's this neurodegenerative process. And so you have to give a drug or a compound that protects neurons from degenerating regardless of the pressure. And, and so people are working on that as well. And there are a number of drugs. You know, actually, uh, uh, there's a, a dextromethorphan, which we take when we have coughs, you know, uh, in Robitussin. It turns out that that's a neuroprotective agent, and people have looked at compounds like that to try to protect the neurons uh, against being damaged uh, later. So, yes. Am I forgetting anybody? And then, then they're next. Okay, good. Uh, I don't know who was first, so we'll, we'll go one, two. Okay, good. Yes. So, so let me start with the second one first. I, you know, I don't, I, I don't follow all the various uh, proprietary ones. You know, there, there are literally 200 uh, different vitamins, all of which are being claimed to be uh, protective and to be better than Occuvite, and I can't say that they are or they aren't. The problem is that there's a lot of danger that people will take unfair advantage uh, of patients and, and make claims uh, because vitamins are not really uh, regulated by the FDA. They're, they're regulated by a different, um, by the food, uh, by, uh, uh, they, they fall under agriculture and uh, veterinary medicines almost. And so, and so you, you get to say what you want and you can't have the FDA come down and close your, close your company or sue you. Um, and so there's a lot of, I would say, misleading and mislabeled uh, vitamins that make particular claims. Oh, this one gets in the cell, the other ones don't get in the cell. This is a, this is a particular antioxidant that nobody studied yet, but we know based on you know, 14 patients treated in, uh, in uh, Hungary that, uh, that it works very well. And so you have to be really careful to not get into a situation because they tend to be very expensive and you write to a, and you send away somewhere and they send it to you and so forth and so on. I, don't, I have no idea about that one. I, I'm not... Yeah, so I mean, that's, I mean, that, 
unfortunately, I, I, I don't want to get sued by saying this, but, uh, but I mean, uh, this is on broadcast. So I don't know that one, and I won't, I won't comment further about that one. The issue about, you, the other question you asked is, uh, is d does cataract removal uh, cause the dry form to convert to the wet form? And the answer to that is probably not. We didn't know that five years ago. Some people were suspicious. Now what typically happened is a person would have poor vision. They had a dense cataract. They would go in, they'd have cataract surgery, and then they, when the cataract came out, they saw badly, and then they started to see worse and worse and worse, and they would assume, oh my gosh, and then the doctor would look in and say, oh, you have macular degeneration, and then from there they would make the conceptual leap, well, the cataract surgery caused my macular degeneration. As you might imagine, another alternative and more plausible explanation is that they had macular degeneration, but you couldn't see it because there was a cataract. You took out the cataract, vision, the disease continued to progress, and then the doctor makes the diagnosis, and the cataract, you know, the, the messenger gets shot, essentially, you know. And so um, so uh, people have done what are called retrospective studies. No one's actually done what's called, what I talked about before, a prospective trial, where they've taken 100 patients who had dry macular generation, and 50 had cataract surgery, and 50 didn't, and then compared how they did a year or two later. But if you do what are called retrospective studies, where you sort of do the same thing, except that you're just culling through the records and finding people, you know, some who had cataract surgery and some who didn't, even though they weren't enrolled in a particular trial, it, the data does not support uh, the conclusion uh, that, uh, that cataract surgery makes macular degeneration worse. Now, the only caveat that I would say is if you have the wet form, there is some theoretical evidence to suggest that uh, if you undergo cataract surgery while you have the uncontrolled wet form, that may make it worse. Uh, another argument says you're better off having the cataract out, at least your retinal doctor can look in, see what's going on, and treat you more effectively. So that, the, uh, that, that's not clear, but it's certainly a person who had mild dry macular degeneration shouldn't be afraid of having their cataract taken out. There's really no data suggest that that's a bad thing. Yes, well, first and then second, yes. Uh, right to your right, yeah, sorry. Go, uh, right, to your, right to your left, sorry, yes. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, obviously without knowing more of the details uh, about your eye, without having looked at it, it's really hard to offer a very specific um, recommendation. You know, we, we have a, you know, we have a, a busy practice, and if uh, me or one of my colleagues, we usually can book non-emergent patients, you know, within several weeks, typically, within a, a week or two. Uh, and if there's an emergency, anybody can be seen on the same day, you know, for a, an emergency. As to what, you know, whether we can help you or not, it depends. If you've had, did you say a detached retina? Yes. Yeah, well, if your retina... Loosening of the retina. No, I'm not sure, not sure exactly what that, what that means. Uh, Technically, it's, uh, that could mean one of several things. I probably would, I think the better thing is for you to be seen and to have somebody look and do, do the testing, you know, and then to, to give you a more accurate. But there are things that can be done. So depending on what you have, even though it may be old, there are, in some instances, uh, we can do things, even in eyes that have had a problem for 10 or 20 years. Sometimes we can't. Oftentimes, and, and as a general rule, the longer you've had a severe condition and not have it treated, the, the, the harder it is to... Nora, how do we do in non-time? Maybe one or two more? Uh, there's one right next to you, I think. Yes. Yeah, good question. So thank you for reminding me to bring that up. I didn't bring it up here because it's 
it gets into the more esoteric aspects, but, it's, but they're really important. Those are called accommodating uh, lenses, and it's kind of the holy grail in ophthalmology. If we could take someone's cataract out and not only make things clear, but give them the ability to focus for reading and for distance, in, a, in effect returning them back, not only to the way their vision was at, at, at uh, 50, but at 25, that would be a big you know, win-win. Um, and so people, you know, there are, there are several lenses, about three or four lenses that are approved that claim to do that to some degree or another. Um, none of them are perfect. And there are people that swear by them, and there are other people who feel that they're not all that good, uh, and then everybody in between. Uh, so I would say that there's no lens, to the best of my knowledge, that really will, it comes anywhere near getting you back to the way it was when you were 25 years old, when you could look at the fine print in the Wall Street Journal at six inches or you know, spot a uh, license plate you know, across the highway. Uh, but there are some lenses that seem to make some homeway. They're called, multi, they're called uh, multifocal lenses or polyfocal lenses. And, uh, there's one called a crystal lens that may change its shape slightly. There are others that actually have rings that are effectively like bifocals or trifocals. So there are different approaches to it. Um, and, and, and some are better than others. I think what, what I would say is, you know, they're quite expensive. You know, they're, they're much more expensive than a regular lens. And, uh, and so right now they're kind of being used on early, what I would call the early adopter group, people that want to have the newest stuff. And I think they're okay. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, it's, it sort of falls into the category of when it works, it's great. But when it doesn't work, it's not so great. Um, and, uh, but they're not dangerous. Um, and, and I think those are lenses where you want to be very thoughtful about whether you uh, do it or not because you have to weigh the, the pros and cons and the expense because they're a lot more expensive. And, and you know, uh, regular lenses work very well if, as long as you're willing to wear reading glasses. Uh, you won't get better vision at distance with a, one of those lenses than you will. In fact, some people argue that you make slight compromises, that the distance isn't quite as good and the near isn't quite as good. I'm not sure that's true, but, but I think that they're going to get a lot better. And my guess is that probably five years from today, all of you that were undergoing cataract surgery will probably be using one of those lenses. Today, it's around 10 or 20 percent, you know, uh, across the board. That's about the average uh, of people that are getting the so-called premium IOLs. Uh, let's do the last question there. Okay, good. Last two, last two, yes. Well, monovision is great. Do you all know what mon, let me tell you what monovision is. So, so remember we talked about making a choice between near and far. You have to decide whether you want to see, after the age of 45, you can get a pair of glasses that will either cause you to see well at cl up close or at distance, and you have to choose. Now, what if you were said to me, well, I want my right eye to be near, I want my left eye to be far. Uh, that's kind of like splitting the baby uh, a little bit. Now, some people like that, and if you look at television anchors and movie stars and people that are in the public eye that don't want to be seen. Now, it so happens that glasses are now a fashion statement, but in the era in which we all had to be perfect before, um, lots of people felt they didn't want to be uh, photographed with glasses, and so they did that, and some people really like it. Now, the only thing is that, in a way, it, it can cause some confusion, so I think the answer is, that uh, if you're considering doing that, which I think is a perfectly good solution, and, I, and a lot of people I know have done this, you have to try it out for size first to know whether it's going to work for you. And the way to do that is to wear a contact lens in one eye uh, that makes you nearsighted and, and, and another one in the other eye that makes you farsighted. And then you have to walk around for a week or two like that and see whether you like the idea that 
that it, 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 at a certain level, everything's in focus, and at a certain level, nothing's in focus because your two eyes are seeing uh, different worlds. And the brain had, remember I showed you before the, uh, the diagram of the eyes being hooked up to the occipital cortex of the brain, and the fact is that what the brain does, which is not obvious, is it takes, uh, each side of the brain actually takes visual input from each eye. So it's not as though the right eye goes to the right brain and the left eye goes to the left brain. The two different visual fields of the, on the left side go to two different parts of the, uh, of the brain, to the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain, and vice versa. And then what the brain does is it integrates all that. So you can imagine if the brain is, you know, is saying, okay, uh, I'm seeing stuff on the right side that's pretty sharp and stuff on the left side that's kind of fuzzy, you know, which is right, you know, is the right, is it, you know, and, and, it, and so it, it, not everybody likes it, but we do know that the brain is pretty plastic and uh, meaning adaptable, and if you, most of us can get used to anything if we live with it long enough, whether it's reduced hearing or reduced vision, balance, you name it. And so uh, the answer is, uh, if you're considering monovision, to try it on for size first, before you commit yourself with surgery to having the power put, because once it's in there, it's a hard thing to reverse. But if you like it, it's, a, it's great. And a lot of people love what you're doing. And there was one last question back there, then we're going to. You addressed bluetooth, but what about bilberry? Yeah, well, there's no data on bilberry. Bilberry falls under the sort of folk uh, herbal uh, remedies. Now, it may perfectly, it may be great. I mean, most things start as herbal, and then people put it to the test, and then you find out, you know, yeah, some, you know there really was some basis for uh, some ancient uh, herbal medicine or not. Uh, so, but bilberry falls into that category of being pretty much folk, folk medicine. And there were actually two of you that had your hands up at the same time, so I don't want to. Last question, yes. So the last question is, uh, are there drops for pterygium? So pterygiums are not cataracts. Pterygium I didn't show you because they're kind of, first of all, they're not typically blinding or serious. And secondly, uh, it's just kind of hard to explain it. A pterygium is kind of a, uh, is a benign uh, to, uh, growth on the, on the pink part of the eye, the conjunct tiva, that can grow onto the cornea. It's usually caused by people that, that spend a lot of time outdoors that are exposed to sun or wind uh, or trauma like dust. Uh, tennis pros get it and sailors get them. And, and uh, we don't understand why uh, the, you get them, but it has something to do with chronic irritation. And so, uh, if, they're, if they're mild, we never treat them. You know, if you're symptomatic and you're having a lot of redness or irritation or they start to grow, God forbid, into the center of the cornea, then that's a whole different thing and we can treat them and we remove them surgically. Uh, sometimes they grow back, uh, but usually they don't. Uh, and so it's, it's uh, but there is no drop, you know, or pill that you can use. It's typically a, uh, it's typically a, uh, a surgical procedure, but a minor one. Now, it may be that these VEGF inhibitors that I showed you uh, that work uh, for macular degeneration and, and reduce blood vessel growth might work on these pterygia because they are vascular, but to this point in time, nobody has used them for that indication yet. So I think I'm going to stop at that point because it's late, but I'll be here for a few minutes, and I thank you all for coming out, and I hope that was informative.
For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.